yeah, this will be Susanna's second Viber. So we might actually do the introduction now. Let's, yes, let's do it properly. <laughs> okay, so... Hi, everyone, and welcome to Anesthesia Coffee Break. My name is Lahiru. And I'm Stan. And today, we're going through a second Viber with Susanna. So welcome to the program again. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, Susanna, now, how was the last time you said it was, it was all right? And... Um, yeah, you're happy to join us again. So clearly it was a good experience. Yeah, it was great. Thanks thanks again for the opportunity. Ah, no problems at all. And, and you'd encourage others to do this, wouldn't you? Oh, definitely. I think it's so hard to get somebody to give you eight vivas in a row or four vivas at a time. Everyone's busy and uh, any opportunity for extra practice is always welcome. It's confronting, but I think it's been really good. So uh, I'd, I'd recommend other people volunteer, definitely. That's that's really great. actually yeah. that's such a great thing. Yeah, I never thought of that. It was it is it is hard to get fresh vibes from different people, and then four plus four or eight in a row. Even that is yeah, that's that's definitely good. And I think you made a good good point. Sort of you know getting out of your comfort zone, because that's what you have to do. You have you have to get out of your comfort zone, and you know you have to put yourself out there. And oh. you know by doing that, it really I think normalizes the idea that um, you know you're conversing, you're talking about you know, your knowledge, you're making mistakes, but you're able to, you know, go on and still have that professional conversation. And, you know, I think it puts you in good stead. I've got to say, just starting this podcast, that was pretty confronting. I, I almost can't believe that we're doing this. But now that we, we do this almost every week, it just feels, it feels normal. It doesn't feel weird at all. Yeah, it feels <laughs> very natural. I mean, like, you know, if you look at how we did this, was it last year in November? Yeah. I think we were... We were reading off scripts, weren't we, from, from the start? Yeah, that's so. how we started. And then we thought it sounded pretty bad. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just make those mistakes and so, own it. So now we're just that living it. <laughs> that's right. So let, let's get started. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll hand it over to Stan for the first couple oh, of no, steps. No, no you're, you're going hit. You're doing the first two again. First two again? Yep. Okay, done. Okay, Susanna. So how do you classify antiemetics that you use in your clinical practice? So antiemetics can be classed dopamine antagonists, which are subclassified into phenothiazines, bisorophenones, and benzamides, uh, serotonin antagonists, such as vansetron, antihistamines like cyclozine, antimuscarinics uh, like iacine, glucocorticoids like dexamethasone, neurokinin-1 antagonists, and others such as benzodiazepines and proxfol. Now, how do you choose your antimedic intraoperatively? So this has been a new um, guideline released recently about post-operative nausea and vomiting management. Mm -hmm. uh, so essentially I start with the risk classification of my patient and have a look at their past history and what are the surgical factors and the individual factors. Um, the recommendation is for most patients to give either one or two antiemetics because um, most people have at least one risk factor. Mm -hmm. So I'll initially give dexamethasone if there's no contraindications and on dancitron. Um, Sounds good. So yeah. How does dexamethasone decrease post-operative nausea and vomiting? So the mechanism of action is unclear. My understanding is that they think there's multiple sites, including the gastrointestinal tract, that it works. And there are several theories surrounding how it works that I've read about. Uh, so there's a theory that it works centrally to reduce the prostaglandin synthesis, um, which results in a, re a reduction in endogenous opioid release and triggering of the vomiting centre. Uh, there's a reduction in local inflammation through 
just the way that prostaglandins, uh, sorry, dexamethasone reduces the prostaglandin synthesis. And this causes a decrease in the peripheral input to the vomiting center. And they also think that it might have some scent, a reduction, some activity on reducing the central serotonergic activity, which can cause nausea and vomiting. But it is unclear. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned ondanstron before. So um, what are the side effects of an ondanstron? So ondanstron can commonly cause headaches, constipation, dizziness and fatigue. Uh, uncommonly, it can actually cause nausea and vomiting, but also prolonged QT uh, and serotonin syndrome, given with the incorrect drugs. And in this class, what are some other medications? Sorry, so you mean serotonin antagonists? What other serotonin antagonists are there? Yes, correct. Ah, so the ones that I know of are ondansetron and granisetron. Sounds good. Uh, what are some of the more serious side effects of ondansetron? Uh, so that would be prolonged QT and serotonin syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, of course, you can get anaphylaxis, um, you can get seizures, uh, you can get urinary. Um, That's great. And what, uh, so what drugs besides ondansetron can cause serotonin syndrome? This can include things like antidepressants, so SSRIs, SNRIs, and TCAs, mm-hmm. uh, opioids like pethidine and tramadol, mm-hmm. uh, antiemetics like metoclopramide or ondansetron. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. ondansetron. And recreational drugs like amphetamines and also herbal agents such as St. John's wort, St. John's wort, and ginseng. And what is the treatment for serotonin syndrome? So essentially depends on the severity of serotonin syndrome. Uh, but initially attempt to cease the exposure and decontaminate the patient if possible. Um, ensure the patient's in an adequately staffed area uh, with adequate monitoring on. And then just take a basic resuscitation approach. So ensure the airway is patent, they've got oxygen, needed, they have appropriate monitoring, um, they've got IV access, check the blood sugar levels, control seizures if they're happening with titrated benzodiazepines as a first line, what barbiturates are a second line, um, and then aggressively correct the hypothermia. So if the temperature is greater than 39.5 degrees, they recommend intubation, ventilating, and neuromuscular blockade as well as actively cooling. Mm-hmm. And if the patient has severe symptoms and is unresponsive to benzos, uh, they say to consider serotonin antagonists such as ciproheptadine, though the evidence behind this isn't great and it's not recommended in all areas, in all departments. Excellent. Just moving on, what is lung compliance? So lung compliance describes the distensibility of the lung. This is the change in the lung volume per change in transpulmonary pressure. And a normal lung compliance is approximately 200 millilitres per centimetre of water. How would you measure lung compliance? Uh, so it depends on which one you're measuring, static compliance or dynamic compliance, but essentially it involves um, inhaling and exhaling. With an, so static compliance involves inhaling with a transesophageal manometer and then exhaling at 100 mil increments and measuring the change in pressure whereas dynamic compliance involves measuring the change in pressure with this manometer uh, throughout a normal tidal volume breath. Mm-hmm. And what is the difference between static and dynamic com- lung compliance? Um, so static compliance is the total compliance in all the alveoli uh, at equilibrium with the external environment, and there's no airflow, versus dynamic compliance, which is when the compliance is measured during the 
uh, inspiratory cycle without any sensation of airflow. So dynamic compliance doesn't allow for the fast and slow alveoli to equilibrate. And for that reason, it's always less than static compliance. Mm-hmm. What are the factors that affect lung compliance? Um, so these include volume factors, surfactant factors and plastic factors. So the volume factors include body size. So a smaller body, such as a neonate versus an adult, um, have decreased lung compliance. Um, the volume of lungs can affect it. The so breathing from FRC uh, is breathing from the steepest part of the compliance curve, so compliance is greatest at this point. Um, gravity, the weight of the lung can affect lung compliance and the base of the lung has a higher lung compliance in comparison to the apex. And posture, uh, when you're in supine position, there's a reduction in your FRC which reduces your compliance. The factant reduces the surface tension of the alveolar air interface, interface uh, and this increases compliance. And elastic factors include age, so you lose elastic tissue with age, which increases your compliance, and disease states such as pulmonary fibrosis. Additionally, with dynamic compliance, uh, increased airway resistance and increased respiratory rate and increased heterogeneity of alveoli um, time constants can all reduce compliance. Are there any disease processes that increase lung compliance? I say emphysema increases lung compliance due to the loss of elastic tissue. Mm-hmm. What does anesthesia do to lung compliance? So anesthesia results in a reduction in the FRC, um, which essentially pushes the normal tidal volume onto the less steep part of the compliance curve. So it reduces your lung compliance. Mm-hmm. How can you improve this? So you can improve this by the addition of PEEP, which can increase the um, increase or mitigate the decrease in FRC of anaesthetic. Mm-hmm. What is hysteresis? The hysteresis is essentially the variation in compliance in inspiration versus expiration. So more pressure is required for even change of volume for inspiration. Comparison to expiration. Mm-hmm. Now, given that given that the lung is not a true elastic body, what causes hysteresis in the lung? So there are three major reasons, which are in the common textbooks. Uh, one is the change in surfactant activity. So the surface tension of the alveolar increases with lung volume due to the nature of how surfactant works. Um, the second reason is stress relaxation. So. Stress relaxation is the inherent property of an elastic body where an expansion, where on expansion, the tension is initially maximal and then it reduces exponentially over time. And collagen in the lungs has a similar structure uh, to something which favors stress relaxation. The third reason is recruitment of alveoli, which isn't significant in healthy lungs, but with someone who does have collapsed alveoli or is breathing, say, um, with the FRC below their closing capacity, they get an in, they have an they need an increased pressure to initially recruit those collapsed alveoli, which can lead to increased or which can lead to hysteresis. Yeah, good. Um, so that's right. the end of this uh, this section. So I'll hand it over to Stan. Yeah. All right. How does the kidney handle glucose? So glucose is normally between four and six millimoles per liter, and it's essentially freely filtered by the glomerulus but in normal states, it's completely or completely reabsorbed by the proximal convoluted tubule. Uh, it's 
It does this via the secondary active transport and facilitated diffusion. And the two main transporters involved are the STLT2 transporter, which has a high capacity and low affinity. So it essentially transports one glucose for every sodium transported across the lumen. And the STLT1 uh, transporter, which is a high affinity but a low capacity. So it transports one glucose per sodium. Um, so it essentially takes up the remainder of the leftover glucose that makes it to the distal part of the proximal convoluted tubule. The um, thing... Sorry. I was going to ask you, the SGLT1, does it, um, is it present anywhere else? SGLT1, I, I believe it's in the gastrointestinal tract. Good. But I might be incorrect. Okay. So tell me more about the, um, like the limits in terms of glucose absorption in the kidney. Yeah, so these receptors are, um, they have, they exhibit saturable kinetics. So they've got a Tmax and the Tmax is approximately 375 milligrams per minute. And what this means is that at five millimoles per liter of a normal blood sugar, essentially, 100% of glucose is reabsorbed. So this is below the Tmax. And why when is you that? get to 10. Yeah. I'm sorry. And why is that? Tell me, what, why is it less than what would, Tmax B. Um, I think so. The, or why is it less? Uh, well, it's freely filtered. I think the Tmax is approximately twelve millimoles per minute. So if you're um, getting rid of five millimoles in your filtrate, you're able to reabsorb whatever's brought into the filtrate. Okay. Now, how much? How might you get glucose in the urine with normal glycemia? So there are a number of different causes. You can have an abnormality with the transporter can be like inherited or acquired such as in conditions such as nephritis. Um, pregnancy causes an increased glomerular filtration rate, but they also think it might cause a decreased Tmax for SGLT um, transporters. So you get a glycosuria with most pregnant women, even though they have a normal glycemia. And of course, drugs such as SGLT2 inhibitors can cause an increase in um, or can cause glycosuria despite having a normal glucose. Okay. And what are the adverse effects of uh, SGL2 antagonists? So they have a low risk of hyperglycemia, but they commonly can cause UTIs and increase and an increase in genital fungal infections. And they've also been said to cause euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. And what is euglycemic ketoacidosis? So euglycemic ketoacidosis is ketoacidosis with a normal blood sugar level between 4 and 6 millimoles. How's, how's that different from diabetic ketoacidosis? So diabetic ketoacidosis, you normally get a hyperglycemia, so B cell greater than at least 13, associated with diabetic ketoacidosis. And this is due to an obvious insulin insufficiency okay. resulting in... And then tell me how... Like, why is it in both scenarios ketones are formed? My understanding is that with euglycemic ketoacidosis, you get a relative, even though you've got a normal blood glucose, there's a relative reduction in glucose in the patient, which causes a reduction in insulin and an increase in glucagon. Um, and then they get the loss of the inhibitory effects of the insulin and they get the excitatory effects of glucagon. So essentially, they go down the same path as someone in DKA. They get increased lipolysis, increased free fatty acids, increased beta oxidation um, of free fatty acids in the liver, which results in increased acetyl-CoA. And then the high 
high amounts of acetylcholate overwhelms the capacity of the citric acid cycle to remove it. So you get increased ketone production because they condense together. Sorry, the two acetylcholate condenses. And how do you diagnose euglycemic ketoacidosis? So there are clinical symptoms as well as um, blood tests. So clinical symptoms that can suggest to include abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and unexplained acidosis in a diabetic patient. Um, but in the perioperative period, uh, blood ketones of greater than 0.6 millimoles per litre are suggestive of euglycemic ketoacidosis. Can, and can you test urinary, urinary ketones? I'm, I'm sorry, could you say that again? Can you test ketones in the urine? Is that um, a way to you diagnose can, it? You can, but it's not recommended by Diabetes Australia as a method of... And why is that? Uh, my understanding would be, I'm not 100% sure, but is that ketones are probably freely filtered in the urine and don't correspond and possibly secreted and don't correspond with the blood sugar. That's okay. Heat, uh, sorry, no, blood that's okay. Sure. What is surgical diathermy? Uh, so surgical diathermy is a form of surgical equipment which converts high-frequency current into heat, which is used to cut and coagulate tissues. And why don't patients get burnt? So... Essentially, it's because you use high-frequency um, high current. So at low frequencies, such as the mains at 50 hertz, a low current will produce heat, but a high current will produce um, heat as well as muscle contraction and things like ventricular fibrillation and cause electrocution. But when you use a high-frequency AC current, like in diathermy, uh, you get an increased heating effect with a decreased stimulation. So greater than 100 kilohertz, you get essentially no stimulatory effects and no risk of VF, and diathermy uses 0.5 to 1 megahertz AC current. Okay. Now, is there a scenario where a patient can get burnt? Um, yeah. So the whole point of the whole principle behind diathermy is it uses current density, uh, so essentially the amount of current per unit of surface area as per Joule's law, which is that heating power is equal to current squared times resistance. So the diathermy tip... Um, puts a very high frequency, high level of current through a small surface area with its increased resistance, which causes heat. Uh, in a monopolar or unipolar diathermy, this goes through the current and then a neutral pad, which is a high surface area and therefore reduces the current density and heat. But if that diathermy pad is not stuck on properly, you get increased current density in that area, which can result in burns. And... What are the safety mechanisms that uh, prevent this? Um, so the safety mechanisms include having a neutral pad. Uh, you can also use bipolar uh, diathermy, which uh, doesn't include the patient as much in the uh, circuit. So only the tissue in between the two electrodes are what's included. Um, additionally, do, do you know, yeah. Do you know any safety mechanism that um, di that monopolar diathermy has to prevent uh, burns? So it has a diathermy pad. Other than the diathermy pad? Um, oh, that, sorry, I'm not sure. No, that's okay. Now, what is macroshock? What is macroshock? Yeah. So macroshock is the, uh, a large amount of current which passes through a person that may lead to death or injury. Uh, so at one milliamp, uh, they said an electrical current is received, but at 100 milliamps, um, this can result in ventricular fibrillation. And how is that different from microshock? 
The microshock is when a small amount of current is applied directly to the heart with the potential to cause VF and death. So whereas macroshock needs 100 milliamps to cause VF, microshock just needs 100 microamps. And how do we prevent macroshock in theatre? Uh, so we have general ways, equipment modification, environmental modifications, and um, patient-specific factors. So starting with the general, uh, we essentially have anti-static flooring, non-conductive shoes. Um, we clean up wet spills and we maintain equipment to avoid faults. Um, our, our equipment is modified and classified according to its modification. So we have class one to three, um, which has mechanisms to prevent macro shock. Sorry, can you tell me what a line isolation monitor is? Uh, yes, so a line isolation monitor is used to monitor a floating circuit. Uh, so it monitors the impedance of the circuit to the ground by creating microfolds of small amounts of electricity through and then monitoring what's returned. Um, so a line isolation monitor can will alarm, it won't uh, the circuit, but it will detect a microfold of up to grade of greater than five microamps and therefore will protect against microshock. And that's it. That's 20 minutes. Well done again. Nice Susanna. one. <laughs> that was excellent. Well done. How do you feel? Uh, well, I'd say electricity is not my favourite topic. I don't think it's anyone's favourite <laughs> yeah, topic. That's right. I don't think so at all. I think we try to learn this stuff, but really, we're, we're no electrical engineers. No, no. <laughs> Even now when I ask the questions, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I've, I had to look back and, and sort of review my notes again because I guess it's not something we think about every day, even though I think we should, shouldn't we? Yeah. I remember asking an engineer this at the, at, at the hospital I was working at studying for this, and, and he, was, he was impressed we were learning this to this level, but then he was just appalled at the lack of knowledge of other things <laughs> I had <laughs> so anyway very specific area of knowledge that luckily better people than us are working on in the hospitals now great now um Lad, you want to give us some feedback on yeah good um on her stems so the first uh, stem was about anti-medics and i thought you had really you know again really well thought out answers great categorization your classification of anti-medics was, was fantastic and also even just your knowledge of the fact that you know, there's news you know the new samba uh pnv guidelines are out as well very very part two centric um, I, I like the fact, and you know, uh, this, this exam is not a part two exam, but I like the fact that when I asked you the treatment of serotonin syndrome, you had a had, had a really good framework that incorporated, you know, the part two logic, the clinical relevance of just you know supportive care, airway, breathing, circulation, but you also managed to uh, integrate the treatments, the specific treatments, including cyproheptine, which is got to say that's not something I've very impressive, not something I heard since um, fourth year med school back in the day yeah. when we had to learn, learn yeah. that stuff. So that was that was really great. Uh, in terms of lung compliance, yep, again, definition was a sharp, your understanding was sharp. Um, one point with dynamic lung compliance, like so, in in nuns when we talk about the measurement of dynamic lung compliance, you're right that it's measured through a respiratory cycle. But the interesting thing is that we are measuring at the point of no flow. So, that, you know, that point of you've just uh, ceased your inspiration and are about to expire. There's that microsecond there where you have no flow. And that's that point where you might measure dynamic lung compliance. But again, your um, yeah, self-gill manometer is used and, and you, you know, you're doing volume measurements. I thought your understanding of that was really great. Uh, and good, another sharp definition of hysteresis. I find lots of people have trouble with the definition of hysteresis and you just gave a really s simple, straightforward answer, which was exactly what you needed to keep moving on with the questions. Uh, so yeah, very good. And that's probably the only feedback for myself. Mm. 
And again, you know, with um, the glucose one, that was very strong. And, um, you know, with regards to T-Max and, and why you don't see that, uh, that T-Max, though, though I think the keyword was splay. Have, I'm sure you know that, right? Splay? Uh, yeah, so that, I mean, that's the keyword they need to use. And what splay means is that not all the tubules function identically. So even though you've got a maximum reabsorption uh, of what you said, the renal threshold is actually a lot lower. It's about sort of 10 millimoles um, before you start getting glycosuria. Uh, Otherwise, your discussion of uh, the LCGL2 inhibitors and uh, DKA and euglycemic ketoacidosis was spot on. So it has to do with the ratio of glucagon and insulin. And it's really a spectrum. So, you know, with uh, DKA, it's, it's, it is a more severe form of euglycemic ketoacidosis. But the scenario, as you describe, is that it's in a state where you don't have um, in any insulin sensitivity at all, okay, with DKA. So you see that in you know your type one diabetics. Um, now, with regards to stem four on electrical safety, diathermy electrical safety, very strong, very very good. The only thing that I wanted to um, uh, sort of mention was when I asked you about with regards to monopolar diathermy. So they've got they've got an isolation transformer inside them, okay, and that protects the patients from burns because what will happen is that you know if you have a poor um, if you've got poor sort of contact with the pad and you happen to have a another electrical current that's out there the line isolation transform will actually prevent that um, from causing the patient to get burns so that that's a that's a safety mechanism all right um, but otherwise everything was described very very well so well done Susanna Thank you very much. Thanks for having me as well. I really liked to have the opportunity. It's been really great. Yeah, excellent. And as always, yep, tell your friends if they want to yeah, have, have some uh, experience of doing this, then we're, yeah, they're very welcome as well. So, hey, Susanna, so just as a casual talk, you know, you've been listening to the podcast for a while. Any, any sort of episodes that you found really helpful? Uh, basically all of your respiratory lectures, to be honest. I've, I've just found it really hard to find other resources that explain it as well as you guys do. So um, just when you categorise things and explain them and break them down for us, I've found that useful, especially for the written as well. Um, but these Viva sessions have been good preparation as well. Um, yeah, excellent. Yeah, and I think everyone learns from them. You know, you learn from them, we learn from them, and... and you know, it's, it's just an overall positive experience for everyone. That's right. Um, and I think we had, a, you know, speaking about categorization, you know, we had, I had spoken to a tra- other trainee today and they were saying they really enjoyed that categorization um, podcast that we did where we just had questions oh, yeah. and we just ran through how do we categorize. How do we, categorize? We, we, could, we could probably do that for cardiovascular as well. Yeah. So yeah. I think, you know, maybe in the next couple of episodes, I don't know if we have time. You know. Yeah, time. <laughs> time. time. <laughs> <laughs> we could just maybe run through some short, snappy question answer session, um, question answer session between you and me. Yeah, I think we should. Sounds good. <laughs> put, put ourselves in the cutting block here. Absolutely. <laughs> so thank you everyone for listening. This is Anesthesia Coffee Break. And again, if you have any questions or any feedback at all, uh, please email us at lahiruandstan at gmail.com. Uh, So as always, share with anyone who wants to do better with physiology and pharmacology, especially for this part one exam. And please subscribe and uh, we will catch you next time. See you guys. Thank you.